What's up? Hope you guys are having a great day today. My name is Matthew Spazzitti and welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazzitti program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. Ladies and gentlemen, if you guys are new to the show today, first and foremost, I want to say thank you. Welcome to the show. You know, like I said, we talk about financial freedom and economics. The reason for that is because financial freedom is taking control of the source of your income. This is the only true way to become financially free because in my view, at least, your freedom is tied to your wealth. Just that that's just the truth. You are a freer person the wealthier you become. You have options that other people do not have who are who have less money. And if you control the source of your money, then you can control whether you grow it and how much it grows and you can control a lot more factors about it. Ultimately just giving you so much more control over your life overall. And then the economic side of that is just that, you know, we need to understand the, the the risks that are out there. We need to understand how to view certain events that are occurring in our daily lives, regardless of what country you live in, whether it's America, whether it's, you know, Cambodia, Colombia, wherever, you know, or Venezuela, or, or wherever you are. And, I, you know, I don't know why I chose those countries, just, you know, where, wherever, it doesn't really matter. You know, you could be from Europe, you know, Germany, the UK, but it does, the fact of the matter, no matter where you live, there are economic events that are constantly occurring, whether on the political level and government or whether just maybe a company decided to do something in reaction to some kind of price drop or price increase. And we need to, we need to understand these events. We need to understand how to view these events. And Austrian economics, in my opinion, is the best way to do it. It provides us a framework. And I like to, to say that it provides us glasses in order to view these events and to understand what they mean for us in our daily lives. It helps us to position our investments. It helps us to position ourselves and our lives. And ultimately, it just it helps us if we can understand what's going on around us and we can see the writing on the wall and even predict events and predict how events are going to play out in the future with some level of accuracy, although timing is not something that economics does very well with, you know, we can ultimately position ourselves and, and put ourselves in a in a position of strength, if you will. So that's why I, I really feel like they're two sides of the same coins, which is why those are the two main topics that we talk about. Now, we talk about a ton of other stuff. We talk about political philosophy. We talk about personal finances. Sometimes we talk about, uh, you know, religion, my faith as a, as a Christian and stuff of that nature. But, you know, and we haven't really gotten into anything else, but so far, but th that's the main stuff, right? That's the stuff that I'm really passionate about. And that that's what the show is about. And uh, I think it's, it really ultimately, when you combine it all, it creates a very empowering message of financial freedom that I think gives a lot of people control over their life in, in a time where a lot of people feel like they have no control. Ladies, I don't know about you, but in the 21st century, do you really feel like you have a lot of control over the things that happen in your life? Most people don't. 
most people don't feel like they have a lot of control. They're just reacting to life. They're not being proactive, right? And as a result of that, I think that there's a, a massive amount of people that would get a lot of value out of this idea that they can control their destiny, their future. They can control the direction they're pointing their life in. And ultimately, if they want something, if they want a better life, all they have to do is make the decision, educate themselves, and then get out there and start making that re- that life a reality for themselves. So it puts the onus on us, right? It puts the focus on us. Instead of having a focus on, a, instead of the locus of control being external, we turn that control in on ourselves. And now the locus of control is internal. We can control it. And, and we, we stop blaming it on, you know, I don't know, racism, or we stop blaming our problems on, you know, some form, you know, sexism or, or, or feminism, right? You know, it's, it's all men, men are the problem, or, or we stop blaming our issues on, you know, greedy capitalists, you know, from the socialist perspective, or if you want to be from the conservative perspective, we stop blaming things on the government and how much control they have over our lives. Instead of looking at all the external factors that you and I have no control over, we start looking at ourselves. And that is an empowering message because ultimately you control your life. We are the masters of our fate. We are the captains of our soul. We get a choice in what our life turns into. And no one, and if we well, if we are committed enough, no one is going to change that for us. Right? People may be able to prohibit it, maybe even prolong it, but in the end, we are the the last arbiters the of of our lives. We are we are the last people to control our life, and in the end, we can ultimately do amazing things and turn our life into amazing, amazing lives worth living. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you guys know that there is a, a an author called Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This man, I mean, his story is absolutely just tremendous to read. And he he writes about his time spent in the gulages in so in Soviet Russia. This man had because he was critical of the Soviet Union, had his liberties and his freedoms stripped away from him. It by all standards, he had all freedoms stripped away. And he I, I believe he actually ended up working in multiple goulashes and yet he survived it all. He was malnourished, he was tired, exhausted, worked to the bone. At the end of the day, he didn't have a nice cushy bed to go to go lay in. He basically had to go lay on rotting hay that was on the cold concrete floor in in, in the, the dead of winter with regards to Russia and whatnot. Ladies and gentlemen, by all accounts, the man had every reason and every right to be angry, to say his life was over, to not to lose that spark of life that keeps us living. And yet he continued to live. Not only did he continue to live, and not only did he live through it when others didn't, he ended up writing a book about it. And he and his book played a part and actually contributed to the fall of the Soviet Empire. Ladies and gentlemen, his story is absolutely amazing. I highly encourage you guys to go look it up. And you know what's even more incredible is that he looks back on his experiences in the in the gulages and he actually says that it was a blessing how could anyone say that i mean you had every freedom taken away from you you were beaten you were forced to work to the bone 
They didn't care whether you lived or died. They just replaced you with another form of slave labor, which is effectively what it was. How can you look at back at that as, as anything but misery? But he looks at it in a different way. He said it was a blessing. It nourished his soul because it gave him a perspective that he wouldn't have had otherwise. You see, what he did was he actually took responsibility for the Soviet Union. He took responsibility for the goulages. He actually stated that he took his respons responsibility for it in the sense that, well, this is partly my fault because I supported communism in my early years. And this is what I got. This is partially me. My fault. Now, is it all his fault? Of course not. There were lots of other external factors that he had no control over, right? But he said he contributed to it. He recognized he played a part in it. And it, it, it's that taking that self-responsibility, ladies and gentlemen, that I think is an incredibly empowering thing. Because once we take self-responsibility and we start to point our, our finger at ourselves saying that we caused this or at least we contributed to it, you know, then once we start doing that, we can ultimately start to recognize that, well, if I caused this, my life to end up the way that it is now, then I can turn around and change it. That being said, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's an empowering message that we have control over our lives and that our lives are whatever we make them. God gives us a choice. If you are religious, if you are a Christian, you do believe in God. I'm, I am, you know, uh, I'm not a Bible beater or anything. So if you don't, you know, I don't, I don't hold any grudges against you or anything of the sort. You're still welcome here and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, God gives us a choice on how we want to live our life. He does. And I think that's incredibly empowering, whether you believe in God or not. I mean, I, we have control over our lives. We just have to make the choice. And I think that's incredibly powerful. So that being said, if you are new, welcome. And I'd like to ask you guys to go back and take the 10 episode challenge. Guys, I'll make it quick because we're already 10 minutes into this episode. Uh, the 10 episode challenge is where basically where you go back, you listen to the last 10 episodes of the show so that you guys get more value out of the show, right? We don't talk about news and economic data, politics, you know, whatever it is we're talking about. We don't talk about it in a vacuum, okay? The fact of the matter is I'm going to be referencing stuff in the in the past episodes that you aren't going to be aware of if you don't go back and, and you listen to that. So I think you're going to get a lot more value if you do that. So take the 10 episode challenge and uh, yeah, and, and you'll get the most value out of the show. On top of that, ladies and gentlemen, before we really dive into the, the main topic of today, I want to ask you, if you are enjoying the, the podcast, if you are getting a lot of value out of this, please go leave me a rating and review on iTunes. It is a great way for you guys to, you know, help me get this show on the map. You know, the show is still very much in its infancy, but it's growing and I'm very excited about it. But, you know, I need your help to continue to grow. So if you're getting a lot of value out of it, then please go to iTunes and leave me a rating and review there. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? So I actually had a hard time figuring that out. I, I've been thinking about a lot of different topics throughout this week. I mean, we already talked about uh, a really great topic last, uh, you know, in the last episode and whatnot. And well, to be completely fair with you, I, I didn't really know which topic I wanted to run with. But in the last episode, 
I mentioned how I wanted to get involved in Bitcoin, but I wasn't really sure what exchanges to go with and and, and whatnot, what uh, brokerage services to go with. And I just, I, I simply didn't know. So I went ahead and I asked you guys, you know, if you are involved in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency at all, and, and you have a favorite exchange or you've got a favorite brokerage service, favorite wallet that you guys use, then please let me know by contacting me via my email, uh, Matthew at NewMillenniumWealth.com. So I'll put that in the the, the the show notes page for this episode as well. I put it in the show notes page of the last episode also. So if you guys are interested in giving your opinion on that, I mean, I'm still looking. I'd like to start getting involved in some cryptocurrency and whatnot. But anyways, I made mention of Bitcoin, right? Now, a lot of you probably know what Bitcoin is. It is a cryptocurrency. So it's a digital currency that is effectively on a ledger system known as the blockchain. Okay. Now, now I don't really want to get in a whole lot as to what is the ledger system, what is the blockchain, but a very simplistic explanation of it is that the blockchain is a ledger. It's, it's one big massive ledger that keeps track of every transaction that has ever occurred and where it came from in the blockchain. So if you go and you spend your money with a vendor, they don't have to know you personally or anything like that. They basically can look at the ledger because everyone has access to the ledger and they can say, okay, yes, you are good for the money because you do actually have this in your account. Okay, good. Yeah. Approved. And it gives people the ability to transact with each other without really having any form of trust that's necessary to build. You don't have to build the trust at all. And that in very simplistic forms, that is effectively the ledger system. It's supposed to be very fast. It's supposed to be uh, very, very good. And ultimately, like I said, it's supposed to be a system that allows people to to either quickly recall data and share data, but also it allows people like in, in, in the event, if you want to use blockchain in a business setting for like inventory purposes or whatnot, some companies are doing that. They're, they're not really using it for cryptocurrency. They're using it for inventory. Whatnot. It's very, very, very valuable for that. But you know, when it comes to transacting, it gives people the ability to engage in commerce, the ability to engage in mutual exchange that ultimately where you don't, have to know or even trust the other person in order to do so. And it, it in a nutshell, in a very, very basic nutshell, that's effectively what it is. And Bitcoin was supposed to be anonymous. You know, Bitcoin had this idea that nobody knows who you are with your money. You can spend your money and it's supposed to be anonymous so that no one can figure that out. Now, to some extent, that is somewhat true. You can even take your Bitcoin off of the computer, put it into a wallet, and then have that wallet on a USB drive. They call this cold storage. Okay, you could take it on, you could put it on a USB drive or something. There, there are certain uh, companies like Ledger and whatnot that actually do this uh, pretty much for you, and they're not that expensive. But basically, you can you can take your cryptocurrencies off the web and and whatnot. But in the end, whether it's actually anonymous or not is really up for debate. Okay, because honestly, in most exchanges that people uh, go ahead and in, use to buy cryptocurrencies, those are centralized exchanges where they track all your information. You have to fill out a whole sheet of information, of personal data, personal information, in order to even be approved to buy cryptocurrencies on their platform, and that information can be shared. So they can actually find you via the exchanges that you are uh, transacting with. They can see that you spent your money via your credit card or via your debit card or via your, your bank, 
and on this public exchange, the public exchange shares that information with the authorities, they can actually track you simply from the exchanges and whatnot. So a highly desirable thing to do is to buy the cryptocurrencies on a decentralized exchange. And basically that's kind of a peer-to-peer type of service, right? You know, basically you go on there and you look for people who want to buy or sell Bitcoin and then they can send it to your wallet or things of that nature. And I don't know if I fully understand all of it, but anyways, that said, we got into a very, very long description of that kind of stuff. I understand a a decent amount of it. I don't understand everything that's involved in it, but I do understand a decent amount of it. I've done a fair, quite extensive amount of research on it uh, a long time ago as well. So some of that information is a little bit fuzzy, but it kind of got me asking the question. Now, this question came up when Bitcoin was originally, when it kind of originally came out. But is Bitcoin money? You know, I don't know. Have you guys ever, you know, taken a step back and actually asked that? You know, could we classify Bitcoin as money? Well, first and foremost, what is money? Money is a, is a mass adopted medium of exchange. Okay, in order for something to be classified as money, at least in my book, it has to be mass adopted by tons and tons of people, probably like the entire country. It has to be mass adopted. And in effect, I got to be able to go and buy a gallon of milk or a carton of eggs via my cryptocurrency. If I got to sell and exchange my cryptocurrency into the US dollar and then go buy it, that, that doesn't count. You know, and that's what a lot of debit cards do. If you go on a lot of these exchanges and a lot of these brokerage services, they will actually offer you debit cards that they say you can spend your cryptocurrency on. But it's in reality because vendors don't, not all the vendors and it's particularly large vendors, because they don't accept the cryptocurrencies, you have to effectively sell your cryptocurrencies and then use the receipts of that, whatever money you got in order to go buy something else um, at like a, a, like a grocery store or a big or big store or something, big box retail store or something like that. And there are some small the retail stores. There are some places that will take Bitcoin, but it's not something, it's not widespread. So while we can say that Bitcoin is absolutely a medium of exchange, Bitcoin is not money yet. But it, and I don't know if it ever will become that because I think once if it starts to really get to a point where it's beyond just speculating and and beyond just the true believers and speculation for investment or trading, if it starts to really get mass adopted with regards to actual exchanging for you know everyday goods, well then the federal government, ladies and gentlemen, is just going to outlaw it. They're just, going to make it an, they're just going to make it illegal to own it, or at least they'll make it illegal to attempt to transact with Bitcoin for everyday things. More than likely, they'll just make it illegal altogether because they can't control it, because it's a decentralized type of system, and ultimately, they only want to allow things that they can control. Now, there may be governments around the world that are more than in favor of it and they will allow you to use it to purchase everyday things. And that that may actually happen. And then once it's mass adopted in those countries, at least in those countries, it, I would absolutely consider it to be money. But on another, so there was one thing that I was wondering and I just kind of ha- was thinking about, but so it, Bitcoin is not money, but it is a medium of exchange, but it could become money under the right circumstances. But what gives Bitcoin value? What makes Bitcoin valuable. This is a very, this is another extremely 
popular question to ask about the about the legendary cryptocurrency. What gives Bitcoin value? What makes it valuable? It's a series of ones and zeros. I've heard a lot of people, particularly older people, that say, I don't understand how Bitcoin has value. What gives it value? Why do people find it valuable? It's just, you know, computer code. Like, well, yeah, but so is Microsoft Office. So is the, okay, the audio and video recording, the screen recording software I'm using right now, Camtasia. So is Google Chrome. You know, you don't have to pay for Google Chrome, but Google Chrome is is free to use because of like advertising purposes and things of that nature, right? But there's lots of different pieces of software that are just computer code, series of ones and zeros that ultimately that you would pay money for, that you can actually have value for. Now, no one has ever gone off and exchanged those items for different things. Well, I don't know, maybe, you know, back in the day when you bought a video game or something, you could exchange maybe with your friends through barter, you know, one video game for another or something of that nature. You you, you might've been able to do something like that. But in the end, you know, what gives Bitcoin value? Now, what, what gives anything value? Have you guys ever really thought about that? What determines the value of any one thing? The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, is what determines the value of stuff is not how much time that was put into it. It's not how much value was added to it. It's subjective. It's the value that someone subjectively gets from using the item. You see, money is a good like anything else. And therefore, what drives the value of it is what people are willing to pay for based based off of the subjective value that they place on it. The value, if I was to take a Picasso painting, right? Personally, (laughs) I'll get into it in a minute. But if I was to take a Picasso painting and I was to put it up for sale and at an auction, people will bid different prices for the painting because people value it differently. And eventually, if someone really wants it, they'll outbid the other by paying the highest price. And in the end, we all have different valuations for the same item. Just because one person was willing to pay a lot of money for this Picasso painting over here doesn't mean I would be. Heck, I don't even like Picasso. Frankly, I think his art isn't isn't really art at all. I, I take a very, very... Um, a very hardcore stance on. I, I don't like modern art. I say modern art isn't art. I'm very much a classical kind of guy. I like the classical arts. I like all that kind of stuff. Modern art and and I don't know if you would even consider Picasso to be a cla- you know modern artist or whatever. But you know, in reality, his art in my eyes is is modern art. And I think a, a child could do what he does. I don't I don't view it as art. I view it as slut. Oh, I might get a lot. I might make you a a lot, a lot of you angry by saying this because a lot of people out there that really do genuinely like Picasso, but um, his his artwork is sloppy, in my view. It's sloppy and it's 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 just bad. I I don't even consider it to be art. So, um, you know, to each his own, right? I don't value Picasso because I don't like it. Right, I don't like a lot of modern art in that sense. I just, I just don't. I've never, I never have. 
I never understood why some people value it so heavily, but that's just my subjective way of valuing it. There's a ton of people out there that would pay top dollar for a Picasso to hang in their home. It would be a, a badge of honor for them. It, it would be kind of a status symbol that they could even afford something that expensive. It would show them, it would show that they're a, you know, high quality person because someone else, oh, it's a Picasso. They have a Picasso in their house. Oh, that must mean that they're wealthier. They got good, they got good taste, right? It's interesting when you, when you really think of this kind of stuff, but everything has a value that we subjectively give to it. And what one person is willing to pay is not necessarily what another person is willing to pay. It all, it's all driven by the value of it all. Now, here's the thing, and this whole idea of everything having a subjective value, this whole thing is really a, is a theory that is, is really a pivotal in the Austrian school of economics called the, sub, the theory of subjective values or the subjective theory of value. It's, it's kind of interchangeable in that sense, but it, that is the theory, right? That everything has subjective value. So you could say that what gives Bitcoin value is largely is subjective that there are people out there that think of it as being highly valuable and therefore are willing to spend a lot of money in order to acquire it. Now, the thing is, is that in economics, they say that this kind of results in a bit of a circularity. It kind of, it's, it just goes around in a circle. Well, what, 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 what determines the value of this? Well, because someone deems it valuable. Oh, okay. What determines the the purchasing power, the the medium of exchange, or whatever? Well, because it's it's it, it's subjectively valuable. But you, so you guys kind of get the idea. So Mises kind of came up with a theory that was that attempted to address this, that attempted to tie you know to ex explain why money has a purchasing power, explain how money becomes in effect money, a media a mass adopted medium of exchange. And he did this with his regression theorem. Okay, now, the regression theorem sounds very complicated, and if you go to wiki.mises.org, you can find an explanation of it, and it, it's kind of difficult to understand, but it's it's really simple. When you really uh, boil it down, and you've read it like I have multiple times, <laughs> I also had it explained to me by, uh, you know, R Bob Murphy and Tom Woods and, and all that kind of stuff years ago. So I also had it explained fairly well that way as well. But... What is the regression theorem? The regression theorem is that what gives an item the ability to become money is the fact that you can tie it back to when it had value before it became a medium of exchange. So to kind of uh, give you guys an example, uh, sugar at one point in time was you could consider sugar to have been a, uh, a form of money. Because it was a medium of exchange that was mass adopted. Why was it mass adopted? Because it had value to a lot of people. It, people got a lot of value out of it and it was easy to exchange. It was something that was used in, you know, a lot and people had, you know, got lots of different uses out of it. So it was very easy and highly desirable to uh, trade and barter and things of that nature. And, well, and sooner or later in a bartering system, after hundreds and upon hundreds of people were, you know, basically uh, self-interested individuals were just kind of acting on doing their own thing. Eventually, sugar, because it was, it was traded by so many people, became a money. And this is basically Mises' regression theorem, that what determines whether something becomes money really is based off 
the value that people had in it before it was a medium of exchange. So a lot of people start to look at Bitcoin and they start to ask questions like, well, okay, does Bitcoin meet the, regre the Mises' regression theorem? Or does Bitcoin break Mises' regression theorem? Because it was created from the get-go to be a form of money, to oust the dominance of the U.S. dollar, to, to dethrone the king of the USD. And to be honest, it's up for debate. Some people say that it breaks Mises' regression theorem and ultimately invalidates it entirely. Some people say that it doesn't invalidate it at all. I I'm one of the impression that it doesn't invalidate it at all. Um, when it comes to Bitcoin, Bitcoin, could you could say that you could tie the value of Bitcoin and w why it was valuable before it was really used as a mass-adopted medium of exchange or even a medium of exchange in, in general was largely it was the ledger system. It was the ledger system and it was the fact that it was anonymous, or at least it was thought to be anonymous. Well, owning Bitcoin is anonymous. Of course, like I said, if you are buying it on an exchange and you're buying it with a credit card, you, well, you get the idea. It's not really anonymous at that point. But holding the coins themselves, that is anonymous, okay? But it was, it was this very idea that it was an alternate, it could be an alternate form of money, an alternate form of, of a medium of exchange. It could be, you know, it was the, 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 the blockchain, like the ledger system that underlied it. And then also, it, you know, or the fact that it was anonymous. There's a whole bunch of reasons for there as to why I think it became a medium of exchange. It was, it was created with the intended purpose of becoming a medium of exchange. And when it was first used, it was first used to exchange for a pizza, supposedly. Someone apparently bought it a pizza for the cryptocurrency. Now, I don't know if these people were friends and they just, you know, he's like, dude, give me a pizza. I'll give you these coins and this is going to be huge. And I, I, I don't know the reality, the, 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 the circumstances, but that was supposedly the very first medium of exchange action, the very first purchase that anyone ever made with Bitcoin. And then at that time on, more and more people started to adopt it. You know, the, the main, the whole reason that Bitcoin was created was out of the desire to get away from a manipulated system that is the U.S. dollar. Because the U.S. dollar is constantly being abused, constantly being devalued through inflation and things of that nature, that, every, that there was a real need and a real desire to create a currency that wasn't going to engage in inflation. The amount of Bitcoin uh, that is ever going to be available is fixed. It's only going to reach a certain point and then it's going to be fixed. No one will be able to create more. So the, the whole idea of that, very no, of that very fact alone is that Bitcoin will not become devalued. And you can see it today. I mean, Bitcoin is hovering around anywhere from $16,000 to $18,000. It's kind of bouncing around between the two points for a couple of days now. And, and frankly, it looks like it's going to easily eclipse its its price that it was at one point in time. It's coming up against a major resistance level, which is like $19,000 and a little bit above that. Um, you could probably say 19900 or whatever. It depends on whether you want to look at how you want to look at the chart. But the fact remains that it is coming up against a major, major resistance level. But I do think that because of all the money printing that the Federal Reserve is talking about, that it actually does have the ability of going higher.
um, which is pretty crazy to think about, that it's going to be worth more than $20,000 for one single coin. It, 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 it's crazy. But it does underline why people find it valuable and, and the demand for it. Now, right now, you know, people are not using it as money. There are some people that are using it as a medium of exchange. You know, they're buying stuff with it. They're highly encouraged. The true believers don't really care much about Bitcoin being extremely valuable. What they really care about is they just want people to use the currency to buy things. Do it. Start encouraging uh, vendors to accept it. The more things you can buy with the Bitcoin, the, the chances of it becoming a mass adopted medium of exchange, aka money, is higher at that point. So that's the idea is they just want it to ultimately, they, they want to try to get it to be more and more easy to, to change into other stuff. They want people to use it more. The problem is, is that it's treated like an investment. And if you own it for less than a year, or even, even if you own it for more than a year and you sell it for more money than what it was worth, you have to pay taxes on it. And this is the same strategy that the government has been using to keep gold and silver from being used as money. For a long time, people have wanted to use gold and silver to transact with things. And of course, there's always, again, vendor adoption. You've got to have stores. You've got to have retail. You've got to have people, you know, restaurants, movie theaters, grocery stores. You've got to have people adopting this as money and willing to accept it. But one of the main, but a contributing factor as to why gold and the silver are not used in that way is the fact that the prices are volatile, okay? And the fact that ultimately you have to pay a tax if you want to sell it and if you want to sell your gold and silver and get your money out of it again, you got to pay a tax in order to do that, which diminishes the value of using it as an actual money or of it becoming money. It's a form of a currency oppression, I guess you could say. They're oppressing the idea of wanting to to use it as a source of money. But anyways, I thought that was a very interesting stu stuff to talk about. Uh, and again, I do not feel as though Bitcoin falsifies Mises' regression theorem at all. That being said, you know, there are actually four articles that I want to read that kind of talk about this, but, um, and I wouldn't normally read four. You guys know that I, I typically don't like to read that many articles, like maybe one or two, but these are really, really short. So I, I decided to go ahead and, and, and throw them in here, and I thought that they'd be very, very helpful for explaining this idea behind Mises' regression theorem and kind, and kind of explaining a little bit of that, you know, just the, the whole confusion between between all this stuff. But before I do, I want to go ahead and hop into doing some affiliate programs really fast. I know we're, we're I, I don't want this episode to go too, too long, so I'll do it really quick. If you guys are interested in becoming financially free, if you like this idea of financial freedom, and in my personal opinion, the best way to become financially free is through Forex trading. Trading in general could be one way uh, of doing it. I mean, whether it's options trading, futures trading, you know, stock trading, what have you, bond trading, but I personally like Forex trading quite a bit. It's some Something that just about everybody can do. You don't have to go and sell, you know, buy or sell things. You don't have to deal with customers. You don't have to deal with customer service, customer relations. Basically, all you got to do is you got to come up 
with a strategy that you can use to get in and out of the market where you make more money than you lose. That's virtually it. Now, it sounds a lot easier than it really is. It's very hard to do, but it's very simplistic. The idea is very simplistic, right? So, but it's one of the best ways of becoming financially free. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a skill that even if you ended up creating a business and all the demand for that business ended up dying off or for whatever reason the the, the, the demand went away, in the end, if you have a skill like trading, particularly like Forex trading, something along those lines, you will have a skill that you can always make money in the markets. You know, in every single country, you can do this. Now, in some countries, you can't short. There are certain rules that you have to adhere to. So if you do live in one of those countries, you may have a situation where you have to create a very specialized strategy to avoid uh, violating those those laws. But the fact remains, ladies and gentlemen, is that it's still possible. And it's a skill that you can always use to make money. And that's one of the best things about Forex trading. If you know how to do it and you know how to be consistently profitable, it is a skill that will always provide you the ability to make money. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much. So guys, if you're interested in becoming a Forex trader like I am, then go to Tier 1 Trading. They're the number one trading coach platform out there in my most humble opinion. I absolutely love them. you got Jason Greystone, Akil Stokes, Charles Miles. These are great, great, amazing guys. They're very honest. They're very transparent. They're going to totally be honest with you about what is required to become a consistently profitable trader. It's a lot of work. And it's not a matter of if you're going to lose money. It's a matter of when. So you need, and they're going to, so they're going to teach you all kinds of skills from, you know, how to create a strategy, how to backtest that strategy, how to forward it, how to, they're going to teach you all different types of strategies and, and patterns, advanced pattern recognition. And then they're going to teach you guys money management and risk management. I mean, they're going to teach you so much stuff. That in reality, guys, obviously they put a dollar figure on the courses that they're selling and whatnot, but in my opinion, it's so valuable. It's invaluable in my eyes. It is incredibly valuable, the type of stuff that they teach you. And, you know, one thing I really, really liked about them more so than, than a lot of other places, a lot of other places would just teach you a strategy. And they'll tell you to go off and, and go trade it. They'll say that they did all the work. This is the this is the consistency of the strategy, all this kind of stuff. But they don't do that at, at Trading Power. They don't teach you just one strategy and say good luck to you. They teach you how to come up with your own strategies that fit your lifestyle, that fit your risk tolerance, that fit your personality. They give you the tools necessary to go off and to learn how to do this stuff. And that's one of the best things about them. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in Forex trading, go check them out. They're really great you won't be disappointed. Next is Skillshare. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in becoming financially free, you need a skill. So Skillshare is a great place to go do that. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to teach someone a skill, but you don't have a skill, you don't really know what you want to do, it's a great place to go to learn lots of, have, get lots of different experiences and to kind of figure out what it is you want to do. And if you already know what you want to do, and you just want to continue advancing your skill, I, for one, think you should always be advancing your skill, whether we are in good economic times or bad economic times. So I highly recommend you guys go check out Skillshare. They got thousands of courses, high quality courses too. They've got courses on trading. They've got courses on investing. They got courses on how to fly drones, you know, email copywriting, photography, coding, all kinds of stuff. So ladies and gentlemen, we all need to be investing in ourselves and our own human capital. So ladies and gentlemen, go check them out. They're absolutely wonderful. 
And last but not least, look, we're talking about money, right? We're talking about Bitcoin. We're trying to discuss whether Bitcoin has value. But you know, there's one thing, you guys probably know where I'm going with this, but there's there's a particular kind of investment that we talk about all the time, uh, hedge against inflation, that needs no discussion as to whether or not it fulfills Mises' regression theorem or whether or not it's money or whether or not it has value or anything of a sort. In the end, ladies and gentlemen, and that asset is silver. Ladies and gentlemen, we talk about inflation all the time on the show and the dangers, how it's a hidden tax and how it's reducing our freedoms because it's reducing our savings and our investment and how much money we have. And ladies and gentlemen, I think that we all need something. We all need to be buying assets that are going to rise with inflation. It's not a recommendation. I don't give re- I don't give financial advice. If you want that, go find a, a licensed professional, which I am not. But ladies and gentlemen, look, inflation is occurring all the time. They're constantly printing money, constantly increasing the supply of money. So it's in my personal belief that we all need to be, you know, taking action, taking steps in order to ensure that our money and our money's value uh, is maintained. And one of the best ways to do that is to get a hedge against inflation to buy assets. Now, you can go ahead and you can do cryptocurrency, but for a lot of people, it's too complicated. And for depending on what currency cr- cryptocurrency you want to buy, it's too expensive. However, there's lots of really affordable ones. There's ones that are pegged to the dollar. But again, it confuses a lot of people. So, you know, some people would avoid it for that reason. The next thing is real estate. Well, real estate's very simplistic to understand. You know, it's not complicated, but it's very expensive. You know, the vast majority of people can't engage in it because they just don't have that kind of money. So what's to be done? Well, precious metals. Like I've said many, many times on the show, look, you got gold, you got platinum, palladium, rhodium, but those are all very expensive as well. But you know what? Silver is not. Silver, in my personal opinion, is at a value that is very, very good. The vast majority of people can get involved with it. And silver is a great way of getting that hedge against inflation, of building that insurance policy against that inflation. So ladies and gentlemen, I think that that's one of the best ways to do it. And that's certainly something that I'm doing. I'm always buying silver. I love it. I, you know, every single Christmas and birthday, I ask for silver coins, uh, different kinds of silver coins for my, for my birthday and Christmas. I also buy a ton of it on my own as well. It's not like I'm just asking for it and asking other people to buy it for me. I go off and I buy a ton of it as well, but Look, I love collecting silver coins. It's fun. The collecting aspect is fun. You know, collecting them from all different types of sovereign government mints around the world that are technically classified as legal tender and whatnot. I, I just think that's really fun. But ladies and gentlemen, you know, silver is a gr- is very easy to get involved with. It's not difficult to understand and it's affordable. So if you're interested in that, if you're interested in building up your insurance policy, if you're interested, you know, against inflation, if you're interested in, you know, just maybe collecting it for the sake of collecting, whatever it is you're, you're interested in, go check out Money Mail's Exchange. Ladies and gentlemen, Money Mail's Exchange is running a referral program where basically if you are a new customer and you go make a purchase and you mention my name, you and I will both get a free silver coin. It's a great way to go and continue to increase that portfolio. And if you haven't started, it's a great way to get started. So if you're interested at all in that, then please go check them out. And if you decide to make a purchase and you're a new customer, then mention my name and we'll both get a free silver coin. And ladies and gentlemen, this is one of my favorite affiliate programs, or I guess it's a referral program really, because we both get value out of it. You know, I say this type of stuff every 
single show when I'm pitching these affiliate programs. You would think that I actually have it scripted. I really don't. I just kind of memorize what I've been saying for a while. Um, But the fact of the matter, look, I mean, I really do like them. I've ordered silver from them all the time. I mean, I, I do it all the time. They're really, really great. They're one of my favorite places to go and buy silver. And I really think it's important to build up that hedge against inflation. And especially if they're talking about helicopter money, look, we're going to need assets that rise with inflation. It's like what Milton Friedman said. The only response to inflation is high living. You need to spend your money on things that are going to rise with inflation. Now, again, you could you could do this with cigarettes and canned goods, but in reality, I mean, unless you're planning for an apocalyptic world where the entire financial system of the U.S. and the U.S. itself deteriorates and collapses, uh, I, I don't know if we're quite in that boat yet. But what I am saying is that inflation is happening, and it's a good thing to uh, have assets that are going to rise with it. Even though it's not a perfect hedge, it's still a hedge nonetheless, and it's not something that should be discounted. So if you're interested, go check it out. Go see if you you want to get involved with that, and uh, you'll be helping support the show. And uh, yeah, it'll be really, really great. All right. Now that we've said that, let's go ahead and jump into the first article. The first article is written by Tho Bishop at the Mises Institute, and it is Murphy on Bitcoin and the Regression Theorem. Based on how frequently the subject came up with friends and families during the holidays, I have a feeling that the topic of cryptocurrencies will not be going away in 2018. By the way, this was written January 2nd, 2018, just to let you guys know. One question I see frequently raised in online Austrian circles is how Bitcoin and other crypto fit with Mises' regression theorem. And so I wanted to share a great blog post by Bob Murphy in 2014 on this topic to help clarify the subject for any interested readers. It was necessary for Mises to come up with this with his regression theorem, which traced the purchasing power of money back to the time at which it was valued as a mere commodity in direct barter in order to ensure that his application of subjective value theory didn't set up an infinite regress. Since Mises was ultimately explaining today's purchasing power of money by reference to observations of its purchasing power yesterday, it seemed that he was merely pushing back the problem one step, but not really explaining the value of money in a logically complete way. Yet Mises pointed out that this was not an infinite regress. Once he reached the historical point at which the money good was used in direct exchange, then standard price theory took over and the regress stopped. So what relevance does this have to Bitcoin? The short answer, none whatsoever. There is no question that people today have a way of estimating the purchasing power of Bitcoin. They can look up the spot price online. If we object that the current price is largely dependent on yesterday's price, then we start back with the regress. And where do we stop? In early 2009, when the first Bitcoin transactions were negotiated, including a pizza that sold for 10,000 Bitcoin. If Austrian economists want to say, but those people had no basis for saying whether that pizza should have been 100 Bitcoin or a million Bitcoin, okay, fair enough. But they did decide somehow those initial transactions provided a frame of reference that guided subsequent transactions involving Bitcoins. If you want to argue that this odd origin means that subjective value theory can't be applied to Bitcoin, okay, then so much the worse for subjective value theory. People right now are exchanging Bitcoins against real goods and services, and the sellers intend to use at least some of the acquired Bitcoins to obtain other real goods and services down the road. There is no question that Bitcoin is currently a medium of exchange, though I would not christen it a money yet. Some people concede that Bitcoin would exist temporarily, but that it would be by its very nature 
be in a bubble with a fundamental value of zero. Okay, but by the same token then, the US dollar has been in the same situation for 43 years, and the only reason this is in peril is that the authorities have been printing more dollars with reckless abandon, something that can't happen under Bitcoin. So when people say Bitcoin will never last as money, are they conceding that yes, it might be the world's reserve currency for half a century? In conclusion, Ludwig von Mises' regression theorem has nothing to say about the empirical question of whether Bitcoin will move beyond a medium of exchange and become a true money. If you think that subjective value theory somehow proves that a digital currency can never get off the ground because nobody would have any experience with which to value it, then you are simply wrong. It happened in 2009. All right, so that was Tho Bishop's uh, take on it. I thought it was very, very, very good. All right, the next one is More on Bitcoin and the Regression Theorem by Chris Calton at the Mises Institute. This one was posted January 25th, 2018. Now, this is was posted in response to Tho Bishop's post a little while back, and it'll actually say that. So a couple weeks ago, the Tho Bishop reminded us of Bob Murphy's explanation of the relationship between Bitcoin and the regression theorem. In the original post by Dr. Murphy, he addresses a common objective to Bitcoin made by Austrian economists. If Austrian economists want to say, but those people have no basis for saying whether that pizza should have been 100 Bitcoin or a million Bitcoin, okay, fair enough, but they did decide somehow those initial transactions provided a frame of reference that guided subsequent transactions involving Bitcoins. Dr. Murphy's explanation is correct, of course, but for those curious, there is an explanation for the somehow that shows the original pricing was not arbitrary. In October of 2009, the early advocates of Bitcoin needed a way to obtain the coins other than mining them, so they set out to find a way to exchange them in dollars and other fiat monies. The problem pointed to by the Austrian objectors did come up, but it was easily solved. Some members of the early Bitcoin community set up a website called New Liberty Standard, and the first quote they listed for a coin in dollar terms was 1,309.03 Bitcoin for $1 was calculated according to the cost of electricity consumed in mining. Whether this was the best means for deciding the original exchange rate or not is inconsequential and it serves to support Murphy's explanation that Bitcoin does not violate the regression theorem. It's also interesting to keep this history in mind in light of Dr. Murphy's more recent post concerning Bitcoin and the cost of electricity. So I thought, again, that that was another really, really good one. I mean, you can look up all day long these types of articles. They're, they're really, really great. You know, Bitcoin really has thrown a monkey wrench or uh, Bitcoin really has challenged the idea of the regression theorem or, or, and whatnot. So it is... And I, don't, I wouldn't say it had challenged, well, maybe it challenges is not the right terminology, but it really has drawn into question whether Bitcoin could become money. And seeing as which it's already a medium of exchange, how did it become the medium of exchange? It's no question that it's a medium of exchange. Of course it is. But how did it become that way? So anyways, that being said, you know, let's go ahead and, and do the la second to last you know, uh, article. This article was comes from ProfitsOfChaos.com. It was written in 2017 by Peter St. Onge. And it, it was really one, a really good one. It says, what backs Bitcoin? As Bitcoin goes mainstream, we're seeing a rise in strong opinions about it. It's the Mac versus the PC of the currency world. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, famous for scoring a $25 billion taxpayer bailout, thinks Bitcoin is a fraud. 
Huh, fascinating. Nobel economist Robert Schiller thinks it's a fad and a bubble. The always entertaining Paul Krugman thinks Bitcoin is a waste of electricity. And BlackRock strategist Turnhill is afraid to price it because he says Bitcoin's got no inherent value. Now, before I continue to go into this, I probably should have stated this doesn't really have anything to do with the regression theorem. Okay, we're kind of deviating from that a little bit because we were talking at the, at the start of the show of what is it that gives Bitcoin value. We were talking about that kind of stuff. And so I just thought this was a great article to use to tie into that. So that's that's what this is for. On the other hand, are the people who actually own and use Bitcoins, hodlers, hold on for dear life, who are often quite passionate about cybercurrencies. They've been very right so far and don't mind letting the world know. The two sides are miles apart. Skeptics think Bitcoin and other cybercoins are snake oil floating tulip-like upon the delusions of basement-dwelling anarchists. While basement-dwelling anarchists, some of whom now live on yachts in Monaco, think cyber currencies are the wave of the future, a wave that will dethrone the devil's very own paper money along with that innocent, if barbaric, relic gold. So who's right? Is it cyber tulips or is the US dollar about to get crushed like Amazon destroying a bookstore? Today, I'm going to address one main concern of critics that there's nothing backing Bitcoin. This is what Turnhill was getting at with no inherent value, and it's a fundamental misperception of how currencies work. The key here is a currency. Like anything else in the economy, including goods, services, or assets, doesn't get its price from some mythical inherent value. Rather, prices come from simple supply and demand. Supply is the amount of the currency in circulation, and the demand is how much do people want it. In the case of currencies, people demand them for two main reasons, to enable transactions and to act as a store of value for savings. This means any valuable currency, including Bitcoin, has value for the simple reason that it offers a feature bundle that beats competing currencies for some people, for some transactions, or for some savings. The currency to beat for Bitcoin is, of course, physical dollars, electronic dollars, and to a lesser extent, gold or new cyber currencies with better features. Value comes from usefulness, not from melting. So first off, what does it mean to back a currency? The term comes from the olden days when paper money could be exchanged for something you can drop on your feet, typically gold or silver. You take your paper to a bank and trade it for gold. In the case of the US dollar, 20 bucks would buy one ounce of gold. Now this world is long gone at this point. First the Fed, then Richard Nixon repudiated backing, which is why today the dollar can't be traded for any backing commodity. If you give it to the bank, they'll just give you another dollar in its place and give you a funny look. Of course, you could still buy gold with dollars just as you could buy a car or a pleasant night on the town. And you've probably noticed 20 bucks no longer buys an ounce of gold, nor for that matter does it buy a very pleasant evening on the town unless your date likes McDonald's. In the case of Bitcoin, like the dollar, it is backed by precisely nothing. You can't redeem a Bitcoin for an ounce of gold. And also, like a dollar, you could buy all sorts of things with a Bitcoin, a coffee, a car, a house. And of course, unlike the dollar, Bitcoins have gone up in value, not down. So you can buy a very pleasant evening on the town with a Bitcoin today. Stepping back for a moment, if we've learned one thing from the much-feared unbacking of paper money, it's that backing mattered surprisingly little. It matters for controlling inflation, yes, but not for the actual price of a currency. Dollars, pounds, yen still hold value decades after complete unbacking. So backing is nice, but it's overwhelmed by supply and demand, just as the main value of a shovel is its ability to dig dirt, not the melt value of its iron. The main value of a given currency is its ability to enable transactions and savings. Transaction demand representing what's in your wallet and savings demand representing what's in your bank or under your bed if you swing that way. Value is in the eye of the the beholder. 
Now note, the currency doesn't have to win at everything. It merely has to be best for some transactions, for some savings applications, only for some people. If so, it has value. It's worth something, specifically how much value depending on how many people, how many transactions, how much savings, all set against the supply and circulation. If on the other hand, nobody uses the currency to transact or save, then yes, it is worthless. In the next Bitcoin video, I'll get into the real world numbers asking precisely what transactions or savings are best suited to Bitcoin to other cryptocurrencies or to gold for that matter. But for now, the point is that given its quasi-fixed supply, Bitcoin has value not because of tulips or Ponzi, rather because it's useful to some people for some transactions or some savings. As for the debate itself, because we can see usage of Bitcoin currencies continues to grow along with the price, there's nothing fundamentally odd or worrying about Bitcoin's soaring price, even granting the short-term bubbles are always happening across financial markets. Finally, getting out the crystal ball, it follows that Bitcoin's long-term price will tend to simply follow that demand, more or less transactions, more or less savings for more or less people. Now, it's interesting that he points out here in this article that, you know, you don't really have to back a currency, a, a money by anything in order for it to be valuable. And he's right. There are lots of different currencies out there today, fiat currencies. We all know of them. They're not backed by anything other than what the government says that they're backed by. Now, there are some people out there that claim that in order for these currencies to have any kind of value. They at one point in time had to be backed or tied to some kind of a commodity that had value before it was a medium of exchange. Again, using Mises's regression theorem. But in reality, th that's another way of looking at it. So they would basically say that because the US dollar was tied to gold and gold had value before it was a medium of exchange and it was used basically for jewelry or just to make things pretty, you know, it had value outside of a medium of exchange before it became that way, you know, therefore that gave the gold the value to become a money. And then that gave the US dollar or the fiat currencies the value to become a money. So that's one way of looking at it. I don't necessarily know if I agree or disagree with that statement, but that is one way of looking at it. There is also another important point here to make that in Mises's regression theorem, Okay, in that theorem, they use commodities as a way of saying that you have to tie back to a commodity. It has to be a commodity or it has to be tied back to a commodity that had some kind of value, some kind of usage before it was a medium of exchange. Now, how does this work with Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin is not a commodity, right? It, 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 it's digital. It's not a commodity unless I guess you uh, I guess there are some people that could classify it as a digital commodity, but it's not a commodity. Right. I, I don't think it is. So how does that work? Well, they you I mean, you got to consider the context back when Ludwig von Mises and Karl Menger were talking about this kind of stuff and and theorizing and all that kind of and all that, you know, they didn't know technology would advance to the extent that it has today. They had no idea where we would be. So, of course, they used what they knew. They knew that money was based off commodities because you can look back in history and that was true. It was based off some form of commodity. You know, at one point in time in the U.S., beaver pelts, sugar, they were both forms of money at one point. They were mass adopted mediums of exchange that you could almost exchange them for just about anything. You know, they had value before they became that way, but they were ultimately that you could classify them as money. So, uh, you know, at that time, 
they could never have perceived a world like today where you don't have to actually tie something back with money, with commodity. And I think that they would ultimately see that. I think that in the end, just because they used commodities as an example to show you how a medium of exchange becomes of a, a, a mass ad- money, which is mass adopted, doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a commodity. Okay, so that just was what they used because it was what they had. It was what they could see. It was again keeping in 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 mind the context and the time frame. All right. So there's one more article I want to read. It's by Peter Saint Onge. Again, this one was posted at the Mises Institute, and it was posted in 2014. And I thought it was very very good. Now it actually questions that whether or not the value of money has to so in in the Mises's regression theorem they basically state that money has to be tied back to something of value or of use before it was a medium of exchange now peter Onge, ba- peter st Onge basically says that no other you know product or no no other product no other good has to to go under this kind of strenuous qualification so why does it have to be money why did it have to be valuable outside of a medium of exchange why couldn't it have been valuable as a medium of exchange why couldn't it have achieved value because it had better characteristics for a medium of exchange than the than the one that is being currently used as money today so it was an interesting theory. I thought I'd read it. I thought it comes at it from a different point. He doesn't think that this goes against Mises's regression theorem. He just takes a bit of a more liberalized approach to reading and, and understanding the regression theorem. So anyways, let's go ahead and get into it. The debate whether or not cryptocurrencies are money has put a spotlight on the Manger-Mises regression theorem. As stated, the theorem posits that a non-fiat money must have had value before it became money. Some have used currency's lack of antecedent value as knocking it off the money pedestal or as forcing cryptocurrencies to anonymously piggyback on fiat currency's own regressions. In a 2013 post, Conrad Graff makes the excellent point that such critiques misread the regression theorem. In reality, Graf argues, the theorem is not a hypothesis to be tested. Rather, the theorem tells us that cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin indeed had some antecedent value. Antecedent meaning, you know, it, it had value before. It had some preceding value, right? At which point, our task is to discover what that antecedent value was. Graf suggests several alternatives, including utility of Bitcoin as a geek toy, as art, or as a social marker. Because of these non-monetary uses, Graf writes, Bitcoin and the theorem do not threaten each other, but merely gaze across the intellectual landscape at another with knowing smiles. Now, this was actually interesting. I actually did go and I there's a link to this Conrad Graf article. And it, it is really fascinating because he, yeah, he says that the value, the utility didn't have to be in something useful or productive. It could have just been anything. The value could have been a geek toy, art, some kind of social marker, some type of people could have had value in it for whatever reason. And it didn't necessarily have to be something productive like a commodity would have been, but it could have been something, well, people just thought it was cool. Maybe it was a a libertarian ideal that kind of embodied itself in this Bitcoin project. And that alone 
made it valuable before it became a medium exchange, even though the intention was to get it to become a medium exchange and to get it to dethrone the supremacy of the U.S. dollar and government-issued and mandated fiat currencies. But that being said, I really do actually like Conrad Graf's take on it, that it didn't necessarily have to be a commodity and it didn't necessarily have to be tied to some kind of a productive thing. And I really, really liked what he said that the the theory itself is not a hypothesis that is to be tested. Rather, it is a theorem that tells us how money becomes or how medium of exchanges happen. So, considering the fact that Bitcoin is a medium of exchange means that it has occurred We know it's occurred. We can see that it has occurred. So now our job is to figure out what was the preceding, what was the the thing that made it valuable? What was that one thing that made it valuable before it was a medium of exchange? You know, what was it? It already obviously happened. People are, are buying things with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has value. It's a medium of exchange. It is a store of value. Okay, so I I really, really like that. I really liked what he said that it's more of a it's not a hypothesis. It's a theorem that just states that this is how it is. So it's not a matter of does this disprove the hypothesis? No, it's more of a matter of so seeing as which that it is a medium exchange. How did it become that way? Right now, Conrad Graf goes on to say in his article, which is not one I'm going to read because it was way too long. But if you're interested, go to the link for cryptocurrencies and a wider regression theorem by Peter St. Orange. And um, he actually will put a link. He, there's a link to that article. It's uh, it's highlighted blue. It says 2013 post right before it says Conrad Graf at the top of the actual article. So if you want to go read that, then you can go click through, click through the links and, and, and go read it. And if you want, I'll, I'll even, you know, even though I described how you can go access it, I'll even go ahead and include that article link in the show notes page below, even though I didn't read it. So you guys, you have access to it pretty easily and whatnot. So you don't have to go jumping through the hoops if you want to read it. But that said, though, even he admitted that he didn't think it was it was a money, quote unquote, yet because it wasn't mass adopted in a geopolitical area. And, it, you know, for me, like I said, money has to be a medium of exchange that is mass adopted in a geopolitical area where I can effectively buy virtually anything with the coin itself. Now, Graf actually says that he would consider it to be money if people would get paid in it and if it was one of those things where people didn't consider the value of Bitcoin by comparing it to another form of medium of exchange, but people considered the value of Bitcoin by comparing those items to Bitcoin. Like people compared the exchange from the perspective of Bitcoin, not from from the perspective of other assets, other goods, other mediums of exchange and, and so on and so forth. So, and you know, I don't know. To each his own, right? What you define as money is subjective. I mean, largely, that's what that is. It's subjective. But in my definition of money, I can't go buy milk. I can't go buy eggs, right? I don't necessarily think you have to be able to pay taxes with it, but I can't go buy virtually anything with it. There are only very specific things that you could buy depending on what stores allow you to use it. So until it becomes mass adopted to where I could go into your local grocery store or big box retail store, maybe I go to the mall or whatever, maybe I, I pay for a movie, a movie theater or something, you know, until I can pretty much buy virtually anything with it, I, I wouldn't consider it to be money. And I don't know if it ever will become that way, like I said before, because they very well may 
make it illegal. But let's go ahead and jump back into this. Peter St. Orge goes on to say, well, I agree with Graph on his main point that the theorem implies cryptocurrencies did have antecedent value. I believe that both the original critique and Graph's response fall into a trap of misreading the theorem as requiring non-monetary and previously realized bought and sold benefits. Money is a useful good. Among Menger's greatest contributions in his principles is the realization that money is fundamentally a good like any other, demanded for its usefulness in enabling transactions and store value with an actual price dictated by its scarcity. If money, like any other good, derives its value from the benefits it offers, it's hard to see why the money, even those benefits, require an antecedent. Just as the internet can be valuable without a pre-internet, a cryptocurrency enabling anonymous, irreversible, low-regulation transactions and savings can be valuable without a precursor. If there is no regression requirement for value in any other good, why does money alone bear this burden? Must money have a non-monetary use? Instead, I would argue for reading of the regression theorem with two important liberalizations. First, benefits provided by money needn't be non-monetary. That is, the benefits can reside in the goods used as money itself. No need for geek chic art. Second, antecedent demand needn't have been realized. The use needn't have actually occurred. It's the antecedent demand, even latent, not the previous buying and selling, which counts in importing value via the regression theorem. To give an example that satisfies both liberalizations, a benefit such as anonymous wire transfers is both a money-related benefit and is also a service that didn't previously exist. In a liberalized regression theorem, this benefit would count as the antecedent demand giving the spark of life to a scarce cryptocurrency. A concrete historical example of a currency offering both mainly monetary value and offering it only at moment of birth is Tang China's paper money, called Flying Cash. Paper offered the key benefit of portability set against its other risks compared with bullion coins, flammability, and uncertain redemption. We could surely seek out non-monetary antecedent value for Tang Cash. Toilet paper comes to mind, but it seems to a stretch to reach for artistic or hygiene uses. Compared to the natural conclusion that flying cash was demanded because of its monetary benefits, the fact that demand for portable money was unrealized would simply increase paper money's value to the unfortunate customer who lacked alternative lightweight money. This mistaken focus on non-money related and realized antecedent value is understandable. Since even Mises seems to be mixing historical and praxeological discussion in Human Action, Chapter 17, Section 4, where Mises writes, No good can be employed for the function of a medium of exchange, which at the very beginning of its use for this purpose did not have exchange value on account of other employments. Here, Mises seems to clearly state that Manger's regression theorem requires a currency to have historically represented a commodity having non-money use. This is a natural interpretation, especially in context of Mises' subsequent discussion of precious metals, clearly useful commodities that can flash at parties. But we must take care here to separate Mises' historical generalization from the praxeological core of his statement. Because Mises has metal on his mind, he suggests the other employment must have been antecedent or did not have, and in his subsequent discussion of metals, seems to imply the commodities should be both concrete and previously in use, realized, for non-money purposes.
Money benefits are as useful as non-money benefits. Again, praxeologically, none of these requirements are essential. Money benefits are as useful as non-money benefits. And as useful commodity could conceivably be created and become a medium of exchange at the same moment. So long as the commodity offers employments in the form of benefits to users, cryptocurrencies, anonymity, regulatory treatment, algorithmically fixed rate of growth, fee structure, and irreversibility of transfer are all money-related benefits, many unrealized before cryptocurrencies came along. On this reading and in agreement with Graf, cryptocurrencies are not at all a challenge to the Gresham theorem. They are a confirmation. At birth, cryptocurrencies offer useful features. These benefits function as employments, giving cryptocurrencies demand via transaction and store value benefits, which in turn import durable purchasing power. Perceptions are important. The seed of demand can then be amplified by marketing, by framing the subjective benefits of the currency. Again, like any other good, if individuals exert effort to communicate and frame the benefits of a cryptocurrency, then we might expect demand to increase. These individuals may be the owners of businesses that benefit from the currency, or they simply may be enthusiasts. Now, we can simply match these subjective benefits to scarcity to yield a price of a cryptocurrency below zero and the currency isn't good enough. It's not perceived to offer enough benefits. It's not cool and it's not art. Above zero and a currency is born. Now, Satoshi Nakamoto t-shirts are all the rage. As technology... As technology lowers the costs of producing cryptocurrencies, broadening the regression theorem's value requirement to accept novel money-related benefits opens up enormously the range of currencies that are possible in the future. It should be exciting. It should be an exciting few decades in the world of currency innovation. All right, that is the last article, and yeah, I thought that was very interesting. So he didn't believe that. In order for something to be classified as money, that it actually had to have uh, non-monetary uses. He believed that the very idea that it offered certain benefits that of being a medium of exchange, that the that the prior medium of exchange, aka like the U.S. dollar, the fiat, you know, the government issued fiat currency, didn't have, as long as it offered benefits that that one didn't have, then. It didn't matter that it was non-monetary. It could still derive value and it could still become money because it offered value. And that was ultimately his point. Now, I look, you don't necessarily have to agree with that. I don't know if I 100% agree with it or not. Either way, no matter what way you look at it, um, the theorem, Mises' regression theorem, ex- still explains how Bitcoin has is it could become money and, and whatnot. But it's not money yet. And I guess the whole reason I went down that whole rabbit hole was to try to explain not only Mises' regression theorem. Yes, I used Bitcoin as an excuse to talk about Mises' regression theorem because I'm an economic nerd. I love that kind of stuff, and I find it highly, highly valuable. It's monetary theory, and it's it's really highly valuable stuff. And I know it's very confusing and, and not easy to understand. Sometimes when you read those articles, I mean, freaking A, they just use very fancy terminologies that just make it very difficult to understand what they're trying to say. And it's not necessarily needed, in my opinion, to get your point across, but it does make you sound smarter and superior. And I can understand the desire to want to sound smart and superior, but still, it, it, you know, it does make it difficult to get your point across and it's not the easiest thing to understand. But that said, though, I think it's incredibly valuable 
okay? And I love this kind of stuff. And so, yes, I did use Bitcoin as an excuse to talk about Mises' regression theorem. But it, but I really did want to talk about the Bitcoin. I wanted to talk about, is Bitcoin money and does it have value? How does it have value? And all that kind of stuff. And I really, really wanted to talk about it. So, you know, when you're, when you're diving into a subject like that, you kind of got to dive into the weeds, in my opinion, with regards to Mises' regression theorem. But that said, regardless of how you want to look at it, according to all the research that I have done, and I've done a lot more research than just reading those articles for you, uh, I've done a ton of research on the subject. And from what I can tell, is it a medium of exchange? Yes. The Mises' regression theorem is not a hypothesis. It is, is a theorem that just says that if it becomes a medium of exchange, this is how it has to happen. So we just have to figure out what was it that allowed it to happen and not whether or not Mises' regression theorem is proven or disproven by the existence of Bitcoin. So I really, really, really like that. But even if you were going to treat the regression theorem like a hypothesis, still, it, it's not disqualified under any circumstances. Bitcoin created value before it was a medium of exchange, and that value was either was both non-monetary and in my opinion, monetary as well. Bitcoin had monetary value right from the get-go because that's what it was created to do. But at the same time, it also had non-monetary value for other purposes like it had a very nerdy appeal to it. You know, there are people who like the idea of cracking, you know, coding and crypto codes and stuff like that. They, they, they love that type of stuff. They just love doing that kind of stuff because it's fun to them. And therefore, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin itself would have been valuable simply because of their interests. The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, is that whether you view Mises' regression theorem as a hypothesis or whether you view it as a theorem that it, that is just real and that you only have to explain how it happened, whatever. Either way, Mises' regression theorem and Bitcoin go hand in hand. They, they're, they're, they do not disqualify. They do not attack each other. They are both very much in complement with each other. And this describes it, yes. While me, and so tying it all back to the original questions at hand, you know, is Bitcoin money right now? No, it's not mass adopted, but does it have the potential to be it? Absolutely. And it can. It's just not there right now. It is a medium of exchange. It is a store of value, but it's not a money yet. It's just not mass adopted. I hope someday that it can be. Another really cool thing about Bitcoin that I love is the idea that let's just say I'm going to go on vacation internationally, or better yet, let's say that I'm running away from a dictatorial regime and I got my secondary passport, and I'm going to run away to my plan B country and whatnot. So I'm, I'm leaving the country, and instead of carrying diamonds or gold or silver on me or, or sending it through the mail and risking it getting stolen, I could just put my money in Bitcoin or some kind of stable coin like Tether or whatnot. Nobody would know that I have it Nobody, because I'm not carrying it on my person. Nobody would know about it at all. And then I hop over into the next country and I've got all my money. It's just all digital. I can transfer and exchange my money into something else. It can hold and maintain value. And then I can use it wherever I want in the world. How cool is that? I mean, there's even another option where you could put it inside of a, a cold storage device, Tether, and then you could sell 
the cold storage device for whatever value the actual currency is in. So if you got like $10,000 in the cold storage device, you could literally sell that device, you know, as something valuable. You can even, you can even sell it. How cool is that? So now the cold storage is acting as a derivative because the value is derived from the underlying asset, which is the cryptocurrency that is inside of the cold storage. I don't know about you guys, but that is amazing stuff because what it means is that with the advent of cryptocurrencies, you can literally exchange to one currency or another. Why is this valuable? Why am I even harping on this? Because of inflation, because of what they're doing to our money. Cryptocurrencies give us the ability to digitally exchange our money that's being abused and one day probably won't even exist. I mean, all empires, all countries eventually die and their monies don't exist, right? So it stands to reason that history will repeat itself and America will be that. Whether you agree with that America is an empire or not or whatever is irrelevant. The fact of the matter that no country lasts forever, nor does its currency. America will be the same way. So when the, the currency starts to die or whatever, you can transfer it into another asset and then transfer it quickly into another currency that maybe is safer in another country or whatever. And you can, it, it's so cool. So you can constantly be hopping from one currency to another. This makes us incredibly mobile in terms of transferring our wealth and storing our wealth in just a really, really cool way in a very, very good way. Now, I mean, yeah, I love silver and gold as much as the next guy, all right? I'm not a huge, I'm not, I don't know if I'd class myself as a big gold bug because I'm not obsessed with it, but I do love silver and gold, okay? I absolutely do. And I believe in owning silver and gold as well. But cryptocurrencies are just another asset, another hedge against inflation that's really good. And let's be honest, if I've got tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars of silver and gold, do you, how do you think I'm gonna transfer that to another country if I'm trying to get out of a country? Do you think I'm going to like just take it on my person? No, the, 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 the TSA is going to take it away from me. They're going to confiscate it. Do you think I'm going to try to put it in the bag and, and let it get scanned and, and just load it up to the, the airplane? That might be one way of doing it. Do you think I'm going to send it via mail? Well, someone, if anyone discovers what's in it, I'm, I'm done. You know, all my money's gone. So what would be a way to ultimately do it? You sell the freaking silver and gold, you put it in cryptocurrency, and then you hop over to another country, and there you go, you got your money. And you don't need a bank account too. Cryptocurrencies also give you the ability to not have a bank account because you just store it in your wallet. How cool is that? You don't even need an offshore bank anymore. Granted, you should probably still, I mean, I still want an offshore bank account, and I would advise... If I was giving the advice, I, I I think it's a good idea. Not that I'm giving financial advice, because I'm not. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that even having it off, having an offshore bank account, you don't even need it. You just need a wallet. How freaking cool is that? It's amazing. We live in amazing times. Troubling times, yes. But amazing things come out of troubling times. The world leaps forward during hard times times. Technologies get discovered during hard times. There are lots of forms of technologies that were discovered during very tumultuous times, war times, stuff of that nature. So look, discoveries come during hard times too. 
you know, anyways, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, it's really cool stuff. Yes, Bitcoin has value. That's how it has value, subjective theory of value. And it also has the ability to become a money due to the regression theorem, but it's not a money yet. So there you go. Answers all the questions that I posed at the beginning of the episode. You know, I, th- I thought that was a pretty good episode. I-, I really had a lot of fun doing it. So guys, look, if you really like what I'm doing here, if you absolutely love this message of financial freedom, you're getting a lot of value out of this podcast, please make sure to like and subscribe wherever you are. And please do me a favor and share the show. If you like the show, if you like these episodes I'm doing, pick an episode that you love and hit the share button with regards to social media. Just get it out there. Help me to grow this show. Help me to grow this message of financial freedom. Look, if you're getting a lot of value out of it, odds are other people are going to get value out of it in your life or, or on social media. So please, if you like it, If you're getting a lot of value out of it, then please share the show and help me grow this message to as many people as we can get to listen. So I really think that there is a lot of people that would value greatly from this message. I really do. I know that it's provide a lot of purpose in my life. And when I didn't have a direction, I know it's given me direction. It's helped me to feel smart when I didn't feel smart before. It's, it's done a lot of amazing things for me. And I would really, if I can help improve other people's lives by helping them get more control over their life, then that is worth every amount of hour, every amount of minute, every amount of work that I can, I can come up with. That, that's worth everything. So ladies and gentlemen, please help me share this message that is incredibly empowering to as many people as we can get to listen. All right, and, and last but not least, ladies and gentlemen, if you love what I'm doing here, you want to contribute to the show, you want to contribute and give me the ability to keep coming in here every week and producing great value for you guys, and you also want to help me grow this message of financial freedom, then please consider giving a donation to the show. We have the ability of giving uh, of taking do- do- donations and for you guys to become patrons and whatnot, so if you are interested in that then go ahead and hit the donate to the show button in the show notes page below. And uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be greatly appreciative of that. If you want to hit me up, you want to get in contact with me, you know, go ahead and scroll below the show notes. There's a big follow me section with all types of links where you can come and find me. And ladies and gentlemen, there's one more thing I would like to ask of you. There is, I'm considering doing a service where I would basically read articles from the Mises Institute, from fee.org, from the American Institute for Economic Research. Now I wouldn't be reading every single article that they pump out, but I'm considering reading different articles from there and providing that as a service to you guys. Because in the end, I think there's a lot of people that really, really desperately want to read this information, that really want to desperately educate themselves and just keep up with what's going on in the world, but they don't have the time to constantly read this stuff. I mean, these people pump out tons of articles all the time. It's very hard to keep up with it all. So I thought that if I could turn it into an audio file and so that you guys could listen to it on your way to work or your way home, or you can listen to it on your lunch break or whatever, I thought that would be very, very valuable. So if you guys think that'd be valuable to you, then hit me up, go ahead and email me via my email, Matthew at newmillenniumwealth.com. I'll put the email in the show notes page below and just let me know if that's something you would be interested in. So it wouldn't be a free service. I probably would charge, I don't know, 10, 20 bucks a month for it, something of that nature. It would be a lot of work on my end to do it. But you know, let me know if you'd be interested in it. I think it'd be cool. I think it'd be great. I think there's a lot of people that would get a lot of value out of it, but ultimately the people will decide. So ladies and gentlemen, if you will do all of that for me, thank you so much for showing up. I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to spend with me every single week. It's absolutely amazing. I love you guys. Have a great week and I'll see you guys in the next episode. As always, know the risks, plan accordingly, and have a great day.